Hello, I am Earl Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at www.schwepp.net. And this week, we are fortunate enough to have Professor Matteo Martelli of the University of Bologna here, to t- a man who knows a thing or two about the very earliest known alchemists in the Western tradition. Uh, Matteo, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me to to be there. (laughs) So, um, often when someone's put out an important work, a book, um, it's a good, it it provides a very good structure to base a conversation on. So I wanted to mention this book you've come out with in 2013. It's entitled The Four Books of Pseudo-Democritus. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the first in a series of projected series of alchemical critical yeah, editions. Exactly, yeah, yeah. We plan to publish other works, especially I think the next step is, a, is another Greek work by Cleopatra, and then there will be two or three volumes devoted to Zosimus of Panopolis. Mm-hmm. So Zosimus will be a very important, uh, let's say, figure within this series. So there, there, there is already a kind of editorial plan. Yeah. Brilliant. I should say that this book is a critical text, and for those who are not familiar with what this means, you've basically taken all the manuscripts in Greek, but also some of it survives in Syriac and not in Greek. And it's all very fragmentary. And you've tried to make, fit the jigsaw puzzle together. and Exactly. To understand a bit what we have in comparison with the original structure, as far as we can understand which structure was the origin, say, and also to see which part of these books were translated into an Oriental language, in that case, Syriac, and which part are preserved only in Oriental uh, language. So, because there are several passages or part of a book that are not in Greek, but are in Syriac. So this comparison is very important in order to, to get a kind of comprehensive overview of what, of what we actually have of these original four books. Hmm. Now, maybe a good question to start out with is, how do we know there were four books? And when do we think these four books were written? We don't have them anymore. We have bits of them in a very confusing, <laughs> chopped up form. What do you think about the dating of these four books? I think, I mean, for the date, I'm quite sure that these four books originally were composed in the first century AD. Because uh, these four books are very important in the later alchemical tradition. So basically, every alchemist after Pseudo-Democritus refer back to these books as a kind of, uh, let's say, holy book on alchemy, the first very important piece of knowledge on on the alchemical, uh, let's say, technique, and also, uh, more or less, uh, more generally on the alchemical uh, tradition. And uh, so we know from these later, let's say, authors, that Pseudo-Democritus originally composed four books uh, on dying technique. Dying. These four books, yeah. These four books were about the making of gold, the making of silver, the making of precious stones or gemstones, and purple dyeing. These were the four, let's say, areas of expertise of, of pseudo-democritus. And there are uh, internal elements of, in the book, actually, in what survives of the book, that uh, allow us to date this, this, uh, the original composition to the first century AD. This is very fascinating. Um, you mentioned the... Terminus Antiquem, of course, is Zosimus of Panopolis, yeah, exactly. who is difficult to date himself, but a lot of people agree on 4th century CE, so very late. Exactly. Um, but Between the 3rd and the 4th, let's say, this is the usual uh, date for Zosimus. But yeah. the Terminus Adquem is fascinating. You've got this reference to a term called Claudianon, 
a Greek exactly. word, which is a substance. And this probably is named after the Emperor Claudius, the Roman Emperor exactly. Claudius. So and it's a name that was also used to, for, for a mine in Egypt. So we can date uh, the exact period where this mine was exploited by the Romans. That's, that's one of the internal, let's say, evidence for, for dating pseudo-democracy to the first century. Brilliant. So we've got, it's, it's quite a range. Um, in your book, you say within those ranges, you, you yourself would probably go for the reign of Nero. Yeah, exactly. Because there is also a quotation, and this is also interesting. This is one of the few quotations we got in non-alchemical literature. Basically, Seneca, hmm. uh, at some point, uh, discusses the, the possibility that Democritus invented a kind of technique to transmute or to, to transform stones into precious stones, to make artificial, uh, if I will remember, emeralds or any kind of yeah. gemstone. And this is in one of these letters to Lucilius. And so we know that when Seneca was writing, some kind of literature, of technical literature about this topic was already attributed to the Democritus. This is also another piece of evidence to date, let's say, these four books, uh, more or less to the first century AD. Seneca, for those who are not familiar, he is a Stoic philosopher, Latin-speaking Stoic philosopher, who actually was... Um, the tutor of the Emperor Nero. Um, exactly. He didn't do such a great job of instilling Stoic ethics into the Emperor, <laughs> but that's a question for another one. <laughs> um, I'd like to back up a little bit. Democritus, those, those of us who know our pre-Socratic philosophers, know that Democritus of Abdura was an atomist philosopher who lived in the f end of the 6th century, 5th century, basically. 5th century, more or less, yeah, 5th century. Yeah. Is that. He's almost not pre-Socratic. He's just edging on He's just the, a contemporary with the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, if you can put it in a nutshell, how does the alchemical Democritus, the pseudo-Democritus, uh, get connected with this atomist from way before? What, what's the story here? This is a very good question. This is a question also that troubled me for a lot of time because it's very difficult to provide a clear answer to this question, in my opinion. There are, let's say, several possible answers or several elements that we, we could actually take into consideration. First of all, I think that usually we associate Democritus to the, the, the race of atomism. This is what is very... Everybody, more or less, is familiar with Democritus as the father of atomism. But in the ancient tradition, there were many other reasons why Democritus was a very well-known and important philosopher. And some of these reasons link Democritus to, to a kind of technical tradition. We read, uh, for instance, the catalog of the writings uh, attributed to Democritus by later let's say, philosopher or historians of philosophers like Diogenes Laertius, for instance, or, or this, this kind of literature. And we, we, we got a lot of uh, very interesting titles of Democritus on, for instance, uh, medical uh, writing. So probably he had a kind of medical education or medical background. And also there is a specific uh, title that uh, means on, uh, let's say, handmade uh, substances or on artificial substances. In Greek is the kerochnika, something that is made by, is cut by hand. And um, I think this kind of tradition is what actually usually alchemists refer back to in order to, to use that the figure of Democritus as a, a kind of father of alchemy. Because otherwise we don't find any reference to atomism 
within the alchemical corpus. So the theory of atomism is, is never used by the alchemists in order to justify or to explain their own uh, chemistry, let's put it in this way. So I think this other tradition, this other, let's say, area of expertise that in antiquity was associated to Democritus can make sense or can explain why Democritus was chosen as, a, as the father, as one of the first, uh, let's say, alchemists. Uh, and uh, because everybody agreed on this point. If you read the text of later alchemists, Zosimus, but Synesius is another important alchemist for, within the Greek tradition, everybody was sure that the author was the real Democritus from Abdera. So that, and they usually call him a natural philosopher. Um, so someone who... Physiologos? Physiologos, exactly, yeah. in Greek. And uh, someone who investigated any aspect of the natural world. But and kind of everyone was a physiologos before Socrates, right? Let's say, this, is, this was... A, actually, they use also the term physicos philosophos. This was another, let's say, term that they used to characterize Democritus. Mm. And of course, they, 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 let's say, this kind of investigation of the nature of the physis, this is something something very common for, you know, for, for ancient philosophy. Yeah. But uh, I think with the, this technical, uh, let's say, lens, or this, this technical approach, I think this, this kind of, uh, of expertise, let's say, was especially attributed to the Democritus. For instance, if you read, uh, there is a very nice uh, novel in form of letters between Democritus and Hippocrates. Ah, beautiful. At, at some point, Hippocrates was called to the uh, to the island of uh, of uh, to Abdera, just because uh, the people there were was, were convinced that Democritus was, was kind of uh, crazy, and so they call Hippocrates just to, to 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 treat him. And when Hippocrates met Democritus, he realized that actually Democritus was a very wise man and was uh, dissecting animals in order to discover the internal structure of uh, so a kind of autopsy or a kind of uh, anatomical procedure. And so this kind, I think this literature gives us a different picture of Democritus that fit well into this uh, alchemical context as well. Okay, great. So that's probably the best the best account of it we're going to get i always wondered couldn't it be just the case that um just to throw out an idea there was someone <laughs> named democritus who wasn't democritus of abdera wrote these books and the first person who read the book went democritus yes. of abdera <laughs> is the big one yeah. <laughs> yeah this is actually this is an explanation that someone tried to give to be honest especially in connection co with this other very enigmatic figure of bolus of mendis mm. Because we know, and then maybe we can refer to him later on, yeah. but we know that there were people in antiquity that used the, the, the name of Democritus just to, to circulate. We, today we would say to publish their own book. Yeah. And it's not very clear if they used the, the false name of Democritus just to cheat people, basically, or they used this name because they, they feel like be part of a kind of school, so we can speak of a Democritian right. school, or yeah. actually their name was simply Democritus, yeah. <laughs> as you suggested. And, uh, but in one case, especially this case of Paulus of Mendes, uh, we know that he used the name of Democritus, but probably because he, he was convinced to basically to go back to a kind of uh, earlier tradition and to continue this kind of investigation into the technical, uh, let's say, aspect of nature. 
Okay. And I think this, this, this to, to, to the best of my knowledge, this is probably one of the possible explanations why Democritus, because there was already a kind of tradition to, what, to which alchemists actually refer back. Very quickly, there are two other names I'd love to bring yeah. up in this context. You've just brought up one, Bolus of Mendes. Can you just say briefly who this rather intriguing character is? Unfortunately, we, we have very few information about him. And uh, we know that was an Egyptian author. So Mendes is an Egyptian city. It, about the date of this author, there are a bit of uh, questions. Let's say people, uh, scholars, don't agree. But now, I think after the, the more recent investigation of it, on him, I think we can put him quite safely into the third, second century before Christ. Right, so Hellenistic Egypt, long before democracy, long before our pseudo I think more or less two centuries before the author of the alchemical books. He wrote about a lot of different topics, but I think there are two topics that are very interesting for us. One of his uh, work is on sympathy and antipathy of nature. So this is a kind of, uh, you know, very broad uh, topic that can be very relevant for alchemy because alchemists were also looking for the way in which uh, natures or elements interact with each other. This idea of sympathy and antipathy, of course, is another way to conceptualize this practice and also this kind of investigation. And he wrote also another text that is called Keirokmeta, so this, uh, uh, let's say, home, uh, handmade uh, or artificial substances. And this is the, the, the same area of investigation that is attributed to Democritus too. So in this sense, there is a kind of continuity mm. between Democritus, Bolus of Mendes, and then the, the author of the alchemical books. Now, how does Bolus of Mendes come into the pseudo-Democritian tradition? Is he seen as a source for Democritus? There, there were a lot of people at the beginning of the last century, actually, for instance, these, these German scholars, he's called Wellmann, he's a very important historian of medicine, and he was convinced that, that the author of the four books was Bolus of Mendes, because we know that he is one of the people who used the name of Democritus to, to sign, basically, his own books. But in my opinion, actually, the way in which Bolus of Mendes is connected to Democritus is in two ways. I mean, on the one hand, Democritus, the, the, I mean, the, the author of the alchemical books, I think, knew the, the works of Bolus of Mendes and took from him a kind of uh, maybe technical knowledge of, for sure, this idea of sympathy and antipathy of nations that is explicitly mentioned in the four books. And there is also a, another element that is interesting, mm -hmm. and that probably Bolus of Mendes refer back to a kind of Persian tradition or ah. Persian knowledge. We can safely assume that he presented himself as a pupil of a Persian magician. And exactly the same narrative actually is present in, in the pseudo-democritian alchemical books. So also this connection with the East is another important element that is, is somehow inherited by the alchemical tradition from Bolos of Mendes and from this kind of tradition, say. That brings us to the second name I wanted briefly to discuss with you, who is, of course, Ostanis. So Ostanis is a Magos, he's a, he's a Persian or a Median or something like that, and he is the exactly. traditional teacher of pseudo-Democritus, right? Of, yeah. of Democritus, the alchemist. And... 
from my, the impression I got from your book is that we don't really know when this tradition starts, that he is the student Absolutely. of Ast Astanis, Absolutely. but at some point someone decides that he is. This is actually an, a very big question mark. When uh, this presocratic, when Democritus started being associated with Ostadis. And I think Bolos of Mendes is one of the authors who play a very important role mm. in this uh, association. Because we know in the Hellenistic time, this kind of legend starts circulating in, uh, in, in Egypt, especially in Egypt. And uh, so probably why the, the Persian? Because uh, at some point, every kind of very important uh, knowledge uh, no, was associated with an Easter origin. Easter is, is, the, is the house of wisdom <laughs> from which, yeah. you know, everybody can somehow <laughs> take something. So I think from that period onwards, these uh, legends start to circulate and, and actually also the alchemical tradition took advantage of this uh, background of these uh, narratives and uh, that's why we found we find the same story in the pseudo-democratian alchemical books. Right. Thank you very much. It's all fascinating to me. But I'm sure some, at least, of our listeners are going, you promised us the earliest alchemy in the Western tradition, and you haven't even talked about alchemy yet. So I think it behooves us to talk a little bit about the question of what the hell alchemy is, yes. especially <laughs> at this early time. We could, we could talk about yes. Festugier, who wrote the wonderful four-volume Révélation d'Hermestrismégiste, in which he sums up alchemy as something along the line, in French, as something along the lines of technical recipe traditions, like sort of instruction manuals for making physical stuff happen in a laboratory, plus a doctrinal component, which is made up of sort of bastardized Aristotelian and Platonic ideas basically, equals alchemy. That doesn't tell us that much. It's very, very general. But do you think that is a reasonable way to characterize alchemy, first of all? I think this is reasonable. I, I, I mean, the, for sure, we can, uh, let's say, update a bit the, the definition of alchemy by Fistugier, but this is uh, the two elements that he recognized, this technical component and the, the theories, or this, this kind of, uh, you know, theoretical, let's say, aspect of alchemy, both are in the earlier, earliest alchemical text that we have. It's not just a kind of a craftsmanship or technical, uh, let's say, procedure, but there is also a way to justify, to understand what was happening. And seeing this kind of more theoretical, let's say, interest. I'd love to get your opinion on what we can safely say about alchemical theory in the in the pseudo-democritus and this is going to be really important when we assess later alchemical tradition go is the, uh, is this the same stuff is this different is this an evolution of the same tradition what's going on all that kind of stuff so what theory can we discern in the earliest known alchemical writer i think uh, the key concept is the concept of nature so what actually democritus is trying to 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 describe and uh, to conceptualize is how different natures can interact with each other. This is very explicit in the text. What is more difficult is to understand what actually Democritus had in mind with the concept of nature, because it's a very mm. broad concept. And I think there is a, a specific passage in which uh, we, we get some more detailed, more precise information, when he compares the, the, the action of alchemists with, with what actually ancient pharmacologists or physicians when we're doing, when preparing a, a drug, a pharmacon, a medicine. As we know, mm. the pharmacon is, is, is actually can mean 
drug, it can mean medicine, it can mean uh, dye, poison as well. So it has a very broad cosmetics, uh, range. Cosmetics, exactly. Magical potion. potions. Potions. But when actually Democritus describes how uh, physicians prepare pharmacon, he describes how they know the right way to mix uh, different properties, uh, different natures, and different qualities. And in this passage, is referring to hot, uh, the, the four qualities, hot, dry, wet, uh, and cold, basically. And, uh, and uh, the, same, the same procedure, the same uh, method has to be followed by ancient alchemists that have to know which are the properties, which are the, the, the natures of the different ingredients, to know which natures actually goes well, which, are no, which or another one, or which one is opposite to another one. So this kind of uh, relationship that we can summarize speaking about sympathy and antipathies of natures. And you have to learn how to manipulate and to use this knowledge in order to find the right combination of ingredients and to produce the right dying drug and to know also which kind of material can be treated with this, with this drug. Because not every drug could actually be used for every material. So the, the basically the relationship between the different ingredients were somehow ruled by this uh, kind of theoretical knowledge that the alchemists could understand before putting everything into practice. Right. This is, I think, the, the, the first theory that we find, let's say, uh, in the alchemical text. But then everything is presented as a natural process, and also this is important, not as something that is, goes against the, the rules of nature. You have to learn the rules of nature in order to manipulate and, doing, and do nature and do something that we would call today artificial. Right. Yeah. Um, we're very much in primitive chemistry territory, yes. you know what I mean? Exactly, exactly. Uh, yes. Because it sounds a bit like what modern chemists do, except they know the rules better. They actually but, yeah. have a better idea. They use also different systems to describe the yeah. rules. Yeah. So, in your view, well... Actually, very quickly, is he the first reference to these four occult qualities of dry, wet, uh, hot, is and the cold? Is the first alchemist referring to these four qualities? Okay, but we have the but references to them in other non-alchemical literature from before. Yes, in the Aristotelian, the philosophical tradition, oh, and also in the medical one, because the, the four qualities are already somehow mentioned in the Hippocratic court both in a, a philosophy and in, in basically in, a, in a medicine. We have this kind of theory that is used in alchemy as well, just to justify and to explain how basically ingredients interact and which kind of qualities characterize a specific ingredient. Mm. So, so far there's nothing here that is that um, weird and wonderful in a way. But you do find in secondary literature people talking about Democritian versus Marian schools of alchemy and antiquity and a kind of more religious approach to alchemy, which we certainly see in, in Zosimus, right, where he's bringing in the Book of Enoch and all kinds of Jewish stuff and mixing it all together, Platonism. But um, is there a kind of what you would call, speaking loosely, a religious side to what uh, Pseudo-Democritus is doing? We, we don't have any kind of Jewish, say, uh, influence in democracy. This is something very different from Maria. 
Mm. And another important difference is that Democritus never mentioned alchemical equipment, instruments, mm. devices. Maybe he did in some part of his books that are lost now, so we cannot actually read anymore these this questions, these, uh, these passages. But uh, if Maria very much focused on uh, alchemical equipment, for instance, the invention of uh, the alambic this distillatory uh, devices or of very specific kind of uh, dyeing, uh, let's say, machines, are attributed to her, in Democritus we don't find this kind of... of uh, and also in, in terms of religion, I would say there are many references to Egypt, to Egyptian temples and Egyptian priests. At some point, Democritus presents itself as a kind of teacher of the Egyptian priests. So we can say that there is a kind of Egyptian, let's say, background or framework in this, in this text, but this is the only, the only religious, let's say, element in pseudo-democritus. Otherwise, the explanation is purely philosophical or theoretical. I, I, I don't know how naturalistic. Oh, naturalistic, I think, that is the best way you know, mm. to, to characterize it. Matteo Martelli, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'd like to s- discuss one short episode from the books of Democritus yes. before we go, because it's too cool to pass over. This is obviously recorded in a later work where... The pseudo-democracist's master, presumably Ostanis, but he's not named, he dies, and pseudo-democracist says, well, he never revealed the final secret to me. I better summon up his soul, I guess, from Hades and interrogate him. And then it turns out that the, his wisdom, the wisdom of his dead master, is hidden inside the, the column in an Egyptian temple. The temple collapses during some kind of temple ritual, and they see revealed the wisdom and the wisdom is nature nature delights in nature and nature has victory over nature and nature rules nature and this is the ultimate secret that was hidden away inside this temple column do you think this actually is a what a paraphrase of something that was actually in democritus's books originally I, I do. I think that is, it was part of the original formula. Amazing. Yeah. So it seems to me like there's some stuff left out. How do we get from he's raising the um, soul of his dead master, Ostanis, to do, we never find out if he does it successfully or not, do we? He it, just, it, I mean, uh, I think the master Ostanis can, can say just a few words. The, the books are in the temple. And then there is a kind of... Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't remember what actually prevents Ostanis to, to explain better, basically, where the, these books are. So Democritus starts searching into the temple, and, uh, but he cannot find anything, and, yeah, as, as, you, as you said. Yeah. But I think it was part of the, one of the four original books, original books of, of Democritus. So here we have, it seems to me, um, a very early, the earliest example of the alchemical obsession with esotericism which otherwise it seems like we don't have here. Like, you just got some recipes, right? But here we're saying, no, 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 this is hidden wisdom. You have to get it from a dead guy. That's always a good place to go for esoteric wisdom. And then the book itself is hidden in this impossible place, and it's only going to get revealed in this impossible manner to a select group who are the Egyptian priests doing their ritual. So this is really esoteric, right? This is giving an esoteric frame to the work, which I find fascinating. I this is what actually is, is very interesting in this kind of text, that sometimes we find elements combined together that we usually never would, I mean, they are not in our mind put in the same categories. 
So we don't think that there is a kind of, we can find this kind of esoteric frame in a text that is so technical. Right. And, but on the other hand, for the ancients, there was no contradiction, no friction, friction between these two components, I think. And this is a, this is a topos, of course. It is a very common, this kind of narrative about the discovery of hidden knowledge, of hidden wisdom in a lot of different esoteric, let's say, traditions. Astrology, yeah. Yeah. magic, uh, sometimes even medicine, for instance, where and, uh, but on the other hand, I think it was absolutely normal for the ancients in order to give more authority, more, more authority, more uh, to present the text as a real uh, revelation about alchemy, mm. just to use this kind of, uh, if you want, rhetorical tool to explain from where this knowledge came from. Mm. And on the other hand, I think, as, as we discussed before, some of these elements, like the Egyptian temple, the Persian uh, magus, can... Uh, be a kind of uh, hint, you know, kind of relic of, uh, of an ancient tradition that actually play some kind of role in the, in the origins of alchemy. So there is a kind of historical background that is somehow revisited, reshaped in this mythological framework. Mm, call it Zoroaster, call it Ostanes, people know what you mean. Back exactly, the they, they, they knew that it was something from the East. This yeah. was the, the message, basically. That is absolutely fascinating. Um, I know we're out of time, so thank you so much for being on the podcast again. Matteo, I have one more question I'm going to ask you. I promise it's just one more. And I, I think I'm going to ask this question to everyone I interview about alchemy, because it's a question that's bothered me for a long time. Are alchemists, from pseudo-democritus to, to Jabber, to Michael Meyer, to modern esoteric people, are they doing the same thing? <laughs> this is a good question. I think they are always referring to the past. So they always present their own work as a kind of uh, interpretation of something uh, wider or more important that was said by someone that lived before them. Right. And so this, I mean, this kind of uh, continued referring to the ancients I think it's something that gives us this idea of continuity. Is in the, in also something that is a reason why we can define, uh, let's say, alchemy as a kind of traditional art. Because tradition plays a, a central role. They never present themselves as someone who do something new. Right. Uh, it's, it's not a real answer, but <laughs> no, I, I, I think I'll get as many answers as I get uh, <laughs> interviews. Right? It's something I wonder about because they, as we've seen in this episode, and we'll probably see in every episode to come on alchemy. After you've talked in a very sober way about source criticism and what's actually in there, and some of it's very straightforward. It's recipes for making fake rubies and stuff like this. At the end of it, then you say, "Okay, so what is alchemy?" And you just go, "Uh." Uh, it, uh, it's very difficult to define. Do, do you know what I'm saying? There's this yeah, yeah, yeah. something slippery, something tricky in defining and nailing down what alchemy is, even more than magic, I feel like. And magic is Absolutely. really hard to define. But um, alchemy is just... And especially because seemingly not the pseudo-democratists so much, but later alchemists delight in misleading you on purpose. So this adds to the... <laughs> but just a, a last uh, comment on this point. Mm. Even the, the term that you use to refer to alchemy is very slippery. In antiquity, we don't have a real name for this science. The name Chemeia, that is the name that we usually use for Greek alchemy, is never used 
by ancient alchemists. So basically, they, we don't have even an, a, a real name that we can associate with this, uh, with this kind of field. That's why it's even more difficult to define what alchemy is in antiquity. I mean, we have very few uh, mention of chemia in the alchemical texts, and for sure we don't have it in pseudo-democritus. So he doesn't call his own science alchemy. Amazing. <laughs> Matteo Martelli, thank you very much. And uh, until we meet again, stay esoteric.